You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Why don't we get into God's Word today as we continue on our worship. Pick up your Bibles, and we will be in Exodus starting out today as we start this epic story of God. And starting in verse, uh, chapter 1, in uh, verse 1 through 10, we'll be there today. Uh, let's follow along in God's Word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Rumid, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. This is God's word. Here we are beginning this epic journey through this story of Exodus, and you likely uh, have images that come to mind as we think about the Exodus story. Uh, different moments in history of God's people a long time ago uh, are so dramatic, Hollywood has taken notice of this and has capitalized on these amazing stories in the Bible and made some movies that I'm sure you're familiar with. Here's the first one, uh, the Ten Commandments, right, with, with Charlton Heston. If you're of a certain age, then you remember, you remember this one. Now, I'm sorry, but a shepherd isolated in the wilderness for, for 40 years uh, doesn't have skin this good, okay? Uh, so what a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful Moses here. Probably didn't look like that, but we, re- we remember these epic stories of him here parting the Red Sea. Uh, if you're a little younger than that generation, maybe you remember this one, Gods and Kings, uh, with um, Christian Bale as Moses. This is one more recent, but maybe a little less known. It's, it's worth a watch. It's pretty good. Here are God's people, over a million or plus people that are going through the Red Sea after it's been parted and the, the waters have receded. Uh, but then if you're tw- in your 20s, then you definitely know this next one, right? The Prince of Egypt. Uh, this, this, I told some people, is the only one of the three that I haven't watched, and there were like audible gasps, so I, I need to put that on my list of, of movies to watch. So that's a great one, right? I've heard. <laughs> uh, the Prince of Egypt. There's no shortage of these movies that are made, no, of these dramatic moments in the book of Exodus. You probably remember, and if you don't have images of these films, you remember these stories that are so common. Here's a big overview of of Exodus, and you can just see the amazing thing that happens. This princess goes down to the river to bathe, and in it she finds this baby, this newborn, in a basket. A a bush is on fire and and not being consumed, and from that bush uh, bellows out the very voice of God. An unarmed shepherd walks out of the wilderness and goes to battle with the most powerful army on the planet and wins. Frogs and locusts and skin boils and hail, darkness covers an entire nation. A whole nation of people walk on dry land from a sea that's been split open and water is on each side of them and they walk on dry land to the other side. The God of creation who has created all things makes himself 
known to the world, and he occupies, he comes down from his presence in heaven and occupies a tent in the desert so that he could be closer to his people. I mean, in everything in between, these are just epic stories. It's a story of deliverance and uh, from oppression, and these stories have inspired liberation movements from the Pilgrim Fathers uh, to the English revolutionaries of the 17th century to anti-slavery uh, campaigns in the 19th century to civil rights movement in the 20th century. So many things have been, have been drawn out of the story of Exodus for, uh, that we uh, realize, see, and enjoy today. But I want you to do something as we dig into this passage. I want you to try to ignore those images of Hollywood. I want you to try to not go too quickly to cultural application in hopes to see God's word with fresh eyes, to walk through this story with fresh eyes. Because this is not a story of, of uh, merely of human heroism. It is a story about an unrelenting God that will do whatever he needs to do to draw his people close to himself. It is a story of a God who is unbelievably powerful and overwhelmingly gracious and compassionate. It's, it's about God who will stop at nothing to rescue his people and to bring them close. And I wonder, have you ever considered how even how God might be even doing that to you today? How that God might be using your circumstances and your trials, your struggles, your suffering to draw you out of that pain and closer to himself. He still does that today. Not just in these epic stories of Exodus, but he, he works in our life and the same powerful and compassionate ways today. And if we learn anything from history of how God has worked and his people in the past, if we pay attention to those stories, then we can learn how God still works today. And so this isn't just a history lesson. It's not just look at how God has worked in the past, but we see the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who shows his power will show his power in our life today. The same God who is compassionate to us, hears our cries and our need for help, is the same God who comes and rescues us. And that's why we, we only read the first 10 verses of chapter 1, which you may, we maybe read that and you said, oh, come on, let's keep going, let's get to the good stuff. But this is the good stuff. This genealogy, this is the good stuff. It's the foundation of what matters in this story. The Exodus story begins with the descendants of Jacob. Why, why do this? What does this tell us? A couple things really quickly. One, it tells us that the stories that follow in this book are true stories. They are stories that are anchored in history. They're stories that are anchored in a time, an ancient time. They're stories that are anchored with real people, with real children that experience real things. This story is not a, it's not a metaphor. It's not, it's not folklore. Uh, they, they are not myths. These are things that happen to a real people at a real time. Another thing it teaches us is that the story as the names continued and this family continues and this family grows, is that this story is not done, but this story continues. It even continues today. And so in a way, the Exodus story is our story. The God who met his people in Scripture a long time ago is the same God who meets us, and this story continues for us. Because God made promises to his people a long time ago, he proved to be a God who knows how to keep his promises, and he makes promises to us still today, and he's a God that intends to keep those promises to us today. 
You likely don't see this word in the Bible in your translation, and I don't see it in mine either. At the very, the very first word in chapter 1, verse 1, my first word is these, but in the Hebrew language, the first word is the word and. It uses this one little Hebrew letter, the vav, and that Hebrew letter means and, A-N-D. And that's how the Hebrew story starts with the word and. Who starts a story with and? You're told never start a sentence with and, let alone a story with and. If I walked into the room and I just said, and that's why he told me to get off his lawn. You're thinking, wait, who told you what and why? And what were you doing there? You'd have so many questions. This epic story of Exodus starts with the word and. What are we to make of that? It's because this is a story that has a beginning, and this is a continuation of that story. It's anchored in real life with a real people. And it, and it starts with the book of Genesis, just the book before. Exodus isn't the beginning of a story. It's the continuation of one. Exodus, where we see the creator God make himself known and creates all things that are seen and unseen. He establishes his good and perfect relationship with man and woman in the Garden of Eden. There's no pain. There's no fear. There's no struggle. There's no insecurity, no broken relationship with God and man, mankind and one another, or mankind and creation. Everything is as it should be. But we learned that they did not trust in God. They didn't keep his promise or rest in it. Instead, they rebelled against God. They believed the lie of Satan, and they rejected the promise of God. And everything groaned at that moment. Everything broke. Everything became uh, cursed and as it was not supposed to be. But the story did not end at that point with destruction and death. And even as God was speaking to Adam and Eve and speaking to them of how life was going to be very, very hard for them because of the sin that they committed, at the same time, he was speaking promise. He said, but one day someone will come, a seed, an offspring of Eve, right? A child will be brought into this world who will break the curse, who will rescue my people, who will um, cure them of the curse of sin, and it will come at great expense to God. And, and, and this offspring will defeat Satan and all the, all the fruit of Satan and sin. And person after person, as we flip the pages of Scripture, we are waiting for this promise to come true. And person after person would not believe God. And person after person would relive the pain of sin and the curse of this sin of what it meant to live without God. And then one day God comes to this man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And from you, I'm going to give you a gigantic family. Takes Abraham outside and he says, look at the stars. He says, I'm going to give you a family more numerous than the stars in the sky. And there's a couple things that were a problem at this point. One, Abraham and his wife Sarah couldn't have children. And Sarah was 90 years old. And Abraham's thinking, you're going to give me a child? You're going to give me an heir? My family's going to be huge? We've been having to try, trying to have children for, for a very long time, and my wife is now beyond, well beyond the years of childbearing. And then Abraham goes and he tells his wife, and God tells his wife, Sarah, that this was going to happen, and, and you know what, what she does? She laughs, because that's exactly what you do when someone tells you something very ridiculous. 
you're going to have a child. And not only that, but this child will be the heir to a nation. And from this nation, the blessings of God will come. And from that family, the promised one who breaking the curse of sin will come into the world. Ha! As if, right? Probably the, you know, when, when, probably the very first LOL recorded in the Bible was, was Sarah, okay? First service laughed at that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we know the more fun service, so that's okay. The, wor- the reason why that the Exodus story begins with the word and is to show us that the God who makes promises to us that often seem ridiculous and implausible is the same God who makes promises to us today and intends to keep every single one of them. Abraham had a son who had a son, Isaac, who had twin boys named Jacob and Esau, and God's blessing, he promised to Jacob, and he continued to say this to Isaac, and then Jacob, and he says, I will not give up. Jacob had 12 boys, and those boys had families, and that turned into a family of 70 people, and I imagine that that family said, wow, God did it. Look at this. Look at this. Just in in a couple generations, God has given us that big family. Well, God said, no, I'm not done yet. That 70 people turned into, in, in, in 400 years, it turned into probably 3 million people. Verse 7 tells us this, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Why do we have genealogies at the start of this story? Why is this a continuation of the story? It is to start us out. As we start to look at the stories of God for his people, we are to remember God keeps his promises. And he told this ridiculous promise to Abraham that he would have a family that is gigantic. And historians, some historians believe that ancient Egypt at this time, the whole nation and kingdom of Egypt, was about four million people. And the Israelite people accounted for about half to three-quarters of that. Two to three million people. And they started with 70. In fact, they started with one man and his barren wife who were well advanced in their years. Why tell us this? Because God keeps his promises. And we are meant to see that, wow, this is an ongoing story of a God who knows us, cares for us, sees our struggle, and intends to keep his promise to take care of us. I want to remind you again that history lessons on the population of Egypt is not the point, but it is to remind us that God is a promise-keeping God. What he said will happen. What he said is going to happen against all odds. And his, his promises to Abraham were met with incredible opposition, wasn't it? incredible challenges. I mean, just some physical challenges, like his wife not being able to to bear children and being well advanced in years. And God says, that will not get in the way of what I'm going to do. It didn't stop him from fulfilling his promise. And the time, do you know the time between 70 people when they arrived in Egypt with Jacob's family to the time they hit two to three million? It was 400 years. 400 years we see in verse 8 to 10. Then there now arose a new king who didn't know Joseph. That doesn't sound very good, does it? What is that showing us? God is a promise-keeping God. And then in the next verse, we are now presented with a change, in a, a, a turning of the page of the story. And we are about to see things are going to get very, very hard for God's people. 
yet again. God's promises come up, and it's met with opposition, and God says, nothing will get in the way of my promises. And here we see the start of a new story in verse 7 through 8 through 10. Here we have another hardship, but God intends to keep his promises. And so we should not only see things are about to get bad, but we should also be looking for how God is going to prove himself faithful. This is a story of an ec- economic migrants that are welcomed into a, a, a country, and at first they prosper, they are welcomed, they are cared for, they are fe- they are, and, and it turns into people that are feared, oppressed, they are victims of genocide and ethnic cleansing, and in s- slavery, and once again the promises of God are under threat. And imagine the discouragement, imagine the confusion, imagine the doubt, to see God's promises come true only partially. God says, I will make you a great people and I will bless you and the promised one will come from your family and I will give you a land where you flourish and only half of that reality comes true. And imagine what the people would have felt. Okay, God, you you kept up half of your promise. You made us a big country. Where's the rest of it? Where's the peace? Where's the land? Where's the freedom? Where is, the, where is uh, the relationship with you that is one of peace and joy? And we don't even know where you are or what you're doing. How many of God's people laughed at God during this time the same way that Sarah laughed at God when she told her something ridiculous? Imagine these people in slavery and oppression like you can never imagine. And God saying to them, I care for you and I will not give up on my promise to you. How many of them went, ha, good one. Not only are you the creator of the universe, you're also a comedian. How many of them would have thought, this is a ridiculous thing. You're done making promises to us. You see, the story of Exodus is a, a story that you and I can relate to. Because it is a story of how God's people can experience deep hardship in life without any explanation. It's how we can experience loss without a purpose. It's how we can experience hostility, betrayal, and pain without protection. And for all of those things to seem to just like be going on in our life with no end in sight. And see, we are the kind of people that want to connect the dots. This is happening for this purpose. This is happening for this purpose. This is happening for this purpose. But what happens when things happen in life and we don't know why? Well, now we can relate with God's people in the way that we've always been. Now, I know this isn't the most encouraging part of the sermon, but I think we need to hear this. Life for God's people on this earth a long time ago and now will consist of long seasons where God's promises appear to not match up with our circumstances. Maybe you're there right now. This is how it has always been for God's people, where we say, Why is it taking so long? Why is it happening this way? I thought you're a God who loves and who cares. And so we are caught in the same dilemma as God's people a very long time ago, where we are meant to remember the promises of God so that we can survive in a world that doesn't work the way it's supposed to. A world that is broken and filled with much challenge and opposition to the promise of God. But he assures us through, through his scripture and as we work through these stories, we will gain a greater confidence that God doesn't fail. Everything he says 
will come true. Every promise he makes will be fulfilled. There's something so basic in each and every one of us in our human nature that needs to make sense of life. Because we observe our world, we hear what God's doing, and it doesn't match up, and we need to make sense of it. And when we cannot make sense of our suffering and these long periods of waiting and even strong opposition to the peace that God has promised, we will have one of a couple option, uh, reactions to that. And I want you to consider what your reaction might be. One reaction is that we'll grow restless. We'll take matters into our own hands. We will be impatient. We will implore God to act. Please, God, like now's the time. You're the God of, of, of love. You're the God of, of care. You hear my sorrows. Well, then here's what I think you should do in response to that. We'll grow despairing. We become anxious in our life. We'll do foolish things out of panic and desperation. God promised Abram that he would have an heir with his wife, Sarah, and it took so long. It didn't happen for a very long period of time. So God and a- uh, so Abraham and his wife, Sarah, agreed, well, why don't you have a baby then with this woman? Maybe that's what God meant. And God said, no, that's not what I meant. Sometimes we take things into our own hand to kind of make it happen quicker. Another reaction we might have is one of resentment. We blame God. We accuse him for not caring. We accuse him for not keeping his promises, and we say, I've waited long enough, and you are just now being cruel. It feels like you're not even around at all. I don't hear you anymore. I can't sense you anymore. And a good father would never let this happen to one of his children And so we grow resentful of God. But I want to let you know there's a third way where we don't have to be restless or resentful. And it's a way of, of walking by faith. And what the Exodus story teaches us is how to be people that mature in faith when circumstances in life are painful, but there's also a God who makes promises. How do we do that? And it's, this is the only way, this third way of growing in faith is the only way that we will survive the days of struggle in this broken world. It's the only way. And Exodus will reveal what this faith looks like through its stories, but also the object of our faith, a God who is unbelievably powerful and overwhelmingly compassionate. The God who sees us and knows us. I want to preview those qualities of faith as we finish up our time together by way of this introduction to the book of Exodus, but also kind of what are some things that we can see going forward. We need a faith that trusts. A faith that trusts. And trust is not a blind faith. It is not a blind leap in the dark. God is never asking his people, just believe and don't think. I remember reading this book when I was young, probably nine or ten years old, and it was a book entitled, Don't Check Your Brain at the Door. (laughs) And what this means, as you might imagine, is when you come into God's Word, don't stop thinking. Don't stop seeing and observing what He does. Because trust in God is based on a bedrock of true knowledge of what God is and who, who He is and what He has done. He tells us there's a God. He is a God who hears us. He sees us. He knows us. He pursues us, comes after us. He is a God who rescues us and blesses us. This is who he is. 
And our trust in him is based on true things. And when we read the story, we read the history, we gain a better better knowledge of these true things that have happened. And what will happen is we will say, wow, is there anything that will get in the way of God's promise for his people? And the answer is no. Chapter 3, verse 7 through 8, we will look at this in a couple weeks. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. Does that sound like a God who is detached from his people? No. That sounds like a God who knows, sees, is present, will come down. He will leave his place of heavenly comfort at great expense to himself to be with his people and will do everything that needs to be done to rescue them. But there is a weak and immature faith at times that his people struggle in. It's a kind of faith that questions God's reliability. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of faith that every time something bad happens, we need to, we, we start to think, well, maybe God was confused. Maybe, maybe he wasn't making this problem, promise. Maybe I misunderstood it. Or we start to take things in our own hands, or we start to blame God for our hardships. But it's a mature faith is a kind of faith that whenever something happens, we realize and know that behind every exhausted sigh in our life, an overwhelmed heart, is a God who promises to strengthen us. Behind every fear is a God who conquers our enemies. Behind every uncertainty is a God who holds us in his care and promises a future of hope. And so a faith that trusts is a faith that says, I know that things are bad right now, but I have a God who cares for me and is unquestionably and overwhelmingly powerful and compassionate. It's a kind of faith that Joseph had when dem- that he demonstrated when he rescued his family who tried to kill him. The beginning of Exodus says these are the families that, of Jacob that came out. Joseph was already there. And in the closing chapter of Genesis, we read about Joseph. And Joseph was a, of a, was a, a, he was a brother, and his brothers didn't like him because of the favor he had from his dad. And his brothers tried to kill him. They beat him up. They threw him in a pit, and they left him for dead and sold him into slavery. And these slave masters took him to Egypt. And there he found favor with the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt. He became the prince of Egypt. I really need to watch that movie, Prince of Egypt. Joseph becomes the prince of Egypt, and there he becomes uh, in charge of all of the food in the midst of a famine, and he saves uh, the Egyptians, but also... uh, his family comes seeking food, and he saves his family. And his brothers are ashamed and embarrassed and ask, why did you do this? Why, why would you help us when we tried to kill you? And this is what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Life is horrible for Joseph. He's left for dead. His own family betrays him. But he thinks to himself, and he knows the God who he serves, and he thinks to himself, God is behind this. And even though this is miserable, I know God is going to do something 
because I trust him. He's a trustworthy God. He is doing something that will turn out to fulfill his promises that he have. And we are his people that are meant to live and not to die. And that's what he says. Have you ever imagined that the reason that you are alive and well today and the reason that you know Jesus, if you're a Christian, the reason you have come into knowing Jesus is because God did not mean for Joseph to die that day. But with all the horrible things that were going on, God meant it for good so that many would live because of it. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. We have a God who is trustworthy, but we also should have a faith that expects, that looks forward to things happening, that knows that God will make a way. This quality of faith is demonstrated and commended through Scripture, maybe most clearly in the person of Abraham himself. Remember, God told Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. He says, I don't have any kids. How is this even possible? Your wife is going to have a son. How is that possible? She can't even have children. She's 90 years old. And from the future of this family will come blessing that will bless all nations. And the, and the child will be born that will break the curse of sin and death once and for all. And, and it happened. Isaac is born. His son Isaac is born. When he's, he grows, he's born beyond what was expected. And, and Abraham's faith matures in this time as he sees the unlikely thing uh, happens that he didn't think was going to happen. He has a son. And then God comes to him, to Abraham, and says, okay, now, you know the son that I promised to you? You know the promise that I made to you that the curse breaker, defeater, would come through his family? Now I want you to kill him. Now I want you to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to me, as a sign of your trust in me. And so Abraham says, okay, he does as God's promise and asked him to do and he takes his son Isaac and he goes up to the hill and he prepares the fire and his son looks at the fire and, and looks at the, the, the altar that's been prepared and he looks at his daddy and he says, dad, where is the sacrifice for this offering? And Abraham says to him, the Lord will provide. God will provide. And as he lifts his knife to sacrifice his son, God yells down from heaven, stop! And he looks off to the distance and he sees a ram caught in a thorn bush. And he says, the Lord has provided. And he offers this ram that God has provided in the place of Isaac. Isaac lives and the substitute has been sacrificed. How could Abraham do that? He was so, he believed so strongly by faith that God would do what he said he was going to do, that nothing would get in the way. And if God promised that he would have a great family, nothing could get in the way. And so he was able to, with confidence, do exactly what God asked him to do, knowing that God would provide. That's what expectant faith looks like. Do you have that? Of course you don't, right? Could I, do I have that? Of course, not to that, not to that degree, my goodness. But what does it look like? Whatever's happening in your life, whatever circumstance and struggle comes into your life, you can look for a way that God will provide for what he said he would do. And nothing will get in the way of that. Nothing will thwart those plans. You see, we have this need to connect the dots. 
it would very, it'd be very easy for us in Abraham's place and very easy for Abraham to say, how could God's promise come true if he said it would come through this son, but now he wants me to sacrifice the son? God's out of his mind. I've got to figure out a different way. I'm not going to do what God said because that would ruin everything. It'd be very easy to do that. You see, when we have faith that expects, all of our decisions flow out of belief that God will do what he said he will do and nothing will ever get in the way. No amount of temporary loss or suffering will ever be too difficult compared to the blessing of trusting God and obeying his commands and walking by faith in the life he's given to us. But then there's this final quality of faith, and it's the faith that is patient. And I'm sorry, I know you hate to hear this, because I think it's something that we all need, a faith that is patient, a faith that rests in God's timetable and not ours. Patience might as well be like a four-letter word in Scripture because we just do not like it. It's just like, I can't be patient. 400 years is an easy period of time to look back on and read in the pages of Scripture and say, wow, they should have been a lot more patient. Well, it's obvious what God's doing here. You should have listened to him. But if you're in the midst of it, it's easy for us to read, read the stories and say, well, it's easy to see where you failed. But if you're in the midst of it, if you're living that life day to day, it's really hard. To be in the midst of this epic journey is another thing to live through. And God says to them, I'll come down, I'll rescue you, I'll take you to myself, I'll bring you into peace. And to such a great promise, we reply with, When? When will that happen? Living on someone else's timetable is an exercise of faith. Living on God's timetable is an exercise of faith that he welcomes us into. And you can quickly see how God is drawing his ancient people into the same kind of faith that he draws you and I into today. A faith that trusts, a faith that is expectant and knows that God will provide. A faith that is patient and waits for him and does the next faithful thing that he asks us to do until he provides for the things that we need. The Old Testament is dominated with promises of God and dominated by the threat of Satan's, Satan against those promises. God makes a promise, Satan wants to threaten it. God makes a promise, Satan wants to destroy it. And every single time, Satan fails. Every single time, that threat is taken care of. And the one who will crush Satan is the one who will come from Abraham's family. We know this to be Jesus Christ. The people a long time ago, the ancient people of God, looked forward to this promise that one will come from this family who will rescue us and defeat the curse of sin. And But we look back on this history and say, and now we know who that is. It's Jesus Christ, God with us. Paul explicitly connects the dots for us and says, the heir, the offspring, was not speaking of many people, but one person, the offspring of the seed of Eve, is Jesus Christ. It is God who has come down. When God said, I will come down and rescue him, ultimately fulfilled in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who lived a life of perfection that we should have lived but failed to live. He died the death on the cross that we deserve to die. He rose from the grave and is triumphant over death and sin. And all of this is a guarantee that he will do every single thing he has said he will do. 
Scriptures say that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. How do we know that what God says will come true? How do we know we can be trusted? How do we know that we can wait for him? Because Jesus, he gave his only son. Do you see this? God asked Abraham to give his only son as a sacrifice, but he was spared so that this ram in a thorn bush would be sacrificed in his place. And we see in Jesus, in this beautiful connection of the two stories, that God gave his only son to die, but he wasn't spared. Instead, we were spared. Jesus becomes that sacrificial lamb. He becomes the sacrifice that dies in our place. And we are to look at this as the greatest evidence, the crowning evidence that God is a faithful God who does everything he says he will ever do. He will never give up. Every time threats arise to crush God's promises, God demonstrates his unbelievable power against his enemies and overwhelming compassion on his people he wants us to see that even today. As we journey through this, these great stories in the weeks to come, be on the lookout for God to work in your life. Be on the lookout to see characteristics and qualities of the God who cares for you and a God who's a promise-keeping God that will never give up and we can trust him. Wait for him.